everybody loves our intro music. Oh, yes. That is, that is some, I've heard that as well. I, I feel so validated. Totally <laughs> <laughs> validated. Thanks, friends. And then so many people are like, oh, your podcast is so fun. And I was like, I think you think that because of the theme song. And that's great. That's like totally the vibe we want to set. Uh. Oh, Chris, okay, what's top of mind for you? Top of mind, um, so I was hanging out with a friend uh, over the Labor Day weekend. Happy Labor Day, by the way, Mm -hmm. everybody. Happy Labor Day. And um, I was watching Aziz's, Aziz Ansari's new stand-up. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really read anything about it. I think I saw some headlines about how he's, you know, like, it, it was. it's kind of funny. It's like this cycle, right? So it's like we went through this, I don't know if it was this summer, but there was a season of Me Too, you know, mm-hmm. um, stories coming out. And um, a bunch of, like, people, including comedians, got ensnared in it. Um so you had Louis C.K., uh, Aziz, um, all these people. Right. And and now it feels like we're in the season of like, who's going to be able to make a comeback and who's not, right? And how are they going to navigate this? You know, I think Louis C.K. tried to come back and, you know, the public was like, nope. Because he handled it so poorly. Yeah. He didn't, he, he gave like an initial apology, but then in his stand-up, he like never addressed it. And then he started going hard after like, trans people and parkland survivors it's like dude this is not this is not what are you doing dude Mm -hmm. and i think his his like his what he did was uh more serious as well yeah i don't want to i don't want to quantify more serious but that's just the general feeling that i got right uh whereas aziz i remember that when that article came out in Mm babe.net um i remember having conversations with people about it and yeah i think like it ranged from a lot of people being like, this is way overblown, um, taking mm-hmm. Aziz's side. Um, but I was always more of the, I think this thing has some valuable thing to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and so when I read that piece, like it made me reflect a lot. And I think it initiated a lot of conversations that I found were more applicable to my life and, and the mm-hmm. people that I knew. Mm-hmm. As um, opposed to like Harvey Weinstein, for example. Right, right. I thought it was a really valuable piece, whether you like, I, I, I think it's kind of somewhat irrelevant, whether you like, you know, he was in the wrong or the right. I, I'm not sure that that's the, the useful conversation here. I think it's more, what can we learn from it? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think it particularly hits like the thing about Aziz is that he comes off as this guy who gets it. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I'd like to think that I get it too. But I think that guys who come off as people who, quote unquote, get it, have almost a bigger blind spot because you think you get it. Right. Right. And I think right. that, that that was valuable for me because it made me be like, oh, you know what? There's a lot still to learn. Mm-hmm. And we always have to be in a posture of listening. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with that said, I, I was really interested in how he was handling it. And I mean... It, it's really interesting. If you haven't seen it, it's um, it's on Netflix. It's called Right Now. And how he talks about it, like he kind of like comes into it with a really well-crafted joke. And then he kind of goes into this mode of like, uh, like really being genuine and trying to be genuine and, and really mm. apologizing and addressing it head on. And then this, and then the set itself 
was really, really interesting because I feel like it was the same set that Dave Chappelle tried to do, mm. which is kind of like, if I can just overgeneralizing, it's like critiquing woke culture. Mm. But Aziz did it way better. Mm. Like he was sharper. His mm-hmm. critiques were more relevant. Mm-hmm. And you could tell the difference between someone of that generation and yes. someone who's like a little past that and not really yeah. sure what's going on. Right. And that was the difference. And um, I don't know. I'll admit, I was a little bit high when I was watching it. <laughs> but I was like watching it being like, oh my God, this is genius. This is unparalleled genius. This is the most genius set I've seen since Chappelle's first or second stand up. This is amazing. Yeah. I can't get over it. I kind of have to watch it again sober, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought, yeah, I thought it was really good. So that was on top of mind. So it was like, it was like two things. It was like how to do stand up comedy in this day and age, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think is an open question for a lot of stand up comedians. Yes. Uh, and then how Aziz, or I mean, not just Aziz, but like how how we as a culture are dealing with these guys who are hugely problematic. Um, but then again, they've built these careers, you know, like especially people of color, like you want to be able to like celebrate all the stuff that they went through to get their success, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, like how, how they're going to navigate that. It's like this open question for the entire culture right now. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And I really feel like, so there, there were like a whole bunch of comedians who were, like you said, like swept up in this, but I feel like Aziz is the only one who has actually apologized. And I think that makes all the difference. You know what I mean? Like a genuine thoughtful apology. Cause I was thinking like when we were talking about, we we're talking about our problematic faves and I was like, I'm not very forgiving, but I was like, a lot of these dudes like have not acknowledged they did anything wrong, you know? So like, I feel like him, I haven't seen this special yet. I like, I feel like I need to work myself up to it because like I loved Aziz so much and that article like I had a lot of feelings about um and so I'm glad that he apologized and I feel I because I desperately want to like him again for all of the reasons that you said plus he's like a a brilliant comedian right like one of the best of our generation and so I didn't think I didn't know he was that good have you seen his previous stuff I've seen clips okay I've seen clips I didn't I didn't see the one where he did uh, Madison Square Garden Uh uh-huh but I always thought you know he's funny and like you know he has that he has his characters and stuff. Um, but I don't know. I'm curious to see what you think about it, like how it compares to that stuff that I haven't watched. I'm probably going to go back back and watch it. But I'm curious to see if you if you saw what I saw in this set. Yeah. I feel like because in the beginning, like I feel like Aziz started out very character driven, like lots of stories about his like cousins. But then now, like as his stuff has gotten increasingly more personal and increasingly more reflective on like his own life, but also like the social his own social location and like that makes it really interesting which then made this babe.net article like very alarming for the reasons you said right like he's supposed to be the woke one who gets it who's a feminist like proudly claims the term and whatever um so yeah like i if he if he is continuing that trajectory and he like apologized in a way that was like really thoughtful and also creative and funny then like that's that's great i would i would be so thrilled to get back on the aziz train again yeah um what about you? What's been on the top of your mind? 
Oh my gosh. Um, okay. So, so ESPN has this podcast called 30 for 30, which shares a name with the documentary series that it launched for its like 30th anniversary. I think it was like five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, but they, in the last few years started like an audio version, which I super appreciate because I don't ever have time to watch anything, but I always have time to listen to stuff like when I'm driving places or whatever. Um, and they released their fifth season all in one fell swoop a few weeks ago. And it is a five part series on Donald Sterling. Mm. And it is incredible. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so can I, can, before you dive into it, when you saw that title, there had to be something that drew you to it, right? Yeah. What was it initially that made you be like, I got to listen to this Donald Sterling thing? I think because, I mean, it was a story that I remember. It wasn't that long ago. For those who don't know, Donald Sterling was the owner of the LA Clippers. Um, he was caught on tape in 2014 saying vile, horrible things about black people. Like, can't believe that somebody actually said that out loud stuff. Um what made a tape even more interesting that it was a tape that his mistress had recorded of him saying that. So there's like this whole level of like family drama. And then like, you know, after that tape dropped, like the whole league exploded because obviously like the NBA is like full of black athletes, mostly rich white owners. Like you got race, you got class, you got this like super wealthy billionaire who's got a wife and a mistress who is like he's like very open about bringing around to places like it had all of the things that I like right like <laughs> race class celebrity Los Angeles like yeah family drama and I was like I am going to listen to the shit out of this which I think is the exact caption I put on the screenshot when I sent you that I sent you that this this was coming out um and it has not disappointed oh my gosh like this this podcast series is like immaculately reported they got huge names like to sit for interviews like Blake Griffin Doc Rivers like Adam Silver and like you think you know the story but then they also get into like Donald Sterling's like very poor upbringing and how he remade himself as this like LA real estate billionaire and um, his lengthy and disgusting history of housing discrimination which I didn't know a whole lot about and then like all of the fallout after and like how the NBA was able to like wrest the team from it. It is so good. And it is so bonkers that like in the middle of the fourth episode, like I had to pause and I was like counting down the hours until I could continue listening. It was great. And then like the fifth episode <laughs> you think is going to be this like denouement, but then the fifth episode is the craziest. So anyway, all I have to say that I am obsessed with the series. Um, it's like all I want to talk about. So if anybody else has listened to it, I will talk about it with you. It is all I want to discuss. You know what we should do? We should have a future episode totally devoted to it. So if you are listening to this, please uh, check out 30 for 30. The Sterling Affair. The Sterling Affair. Yeah. Yes. It, it is so good. Oh my gosh. I feel like a lot of the things I just said too could also be said about the OJ Simpson documentary that 30 for 30 produced. That one was great. Oh which God. was like, God, like the platonic form of documentaries, like the best thing I've ever seen. Um, and it's like, it's it's not quite at that level because nothing is, but like it has so many of those same themes. And like, I think, um, who was it? 
Baxter Holmes is this writer for ESPN, and he talks about how sports writing is just like a means through which to tell broader human stories and to like offer social commentary about things like race and class and all that. And like, I feel like the, like the OJ story, like this story is like exactly that. It's like a very good commentary on like race and class and gender. Oh my gosh, gender as well. Like it's Mm -hmm. so good. So if those things interest you, even if you're not interested in, in sports, I think you'll find this. I think you'll enjoy this. Awesome. I mean, there's so many different ways you can go with that. that, So many different ways. I think the one thing, because I listen to this um, series as well, and I I have similar feelings as you do, Liz. Um, Mm -hmm. But just the thing that kept coming up over and over again is this whole plantation mentality that Donald Mm -hmm. Sterling has. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, you know, sometimes we throw around buzzwords and, you know, sometimes it loses meaning. But when you listen to how he talks about his players, the actions and then the anecdotes over the years. Ooh. There's just there's no other conclusion you can come to. No, I mean, that is actually is the perfect term for it, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I alluded to this vaguely when I was talking about again my problematic faves. Like the discomfort I have with college football is largely around the fact that it's like these like these young athletes who are, like, especially in football, like mostly black or largely black men, like making tons and tons of money for these white institutions that, and that they never get to see. Right. You just see these like weird, like vestiges of slavery that are like very uncomfortable. And then the New York times had a really good article about this as part of their 1619, like their huge issue on um, the 400th anniversary of the first African slaves arriving in what is now the United States. Um, So I feel like this is like, something that like people people have been talking about and like it's something that really needs to be addressed because like the parallels are so uncomfortable right like at the nfl combine these athletes get like measured and weighed and their wing spread is like it's they really are kind of like sized up and valued as property and it's but it's like such an acceptable part of our culture and it's so uncomfortable mm-hmm. i don't know yeah so yeah, I think anyway. a day of reckoning is definitely coming, especially in the NFL. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll we'll put yeah. a let's put a lid on that now because I feel like that is a whole episode. Yes, <laughs> for sure. For sure. 100%. Okay. Um let's move on. All right. So, Chris and I are both in our 30s, and one of the most surprising things about being in your 30s is how wildly different your life can be from that of your friends. Yeah. Um, when you're a kid, like you have your friends and you go through school together. And if you are in a college bound crowd, you all go to college where you might be in different places, but you're all doing like pretty much the same thing. Right. And then when you graduate, things start to split. Some people start working, some people start grad school. And like, I remember that being like the first time I felt like, gap in my experiences between me and my friends from before Mm. and then people start getting married and some of those people start having kids and then by the time you get to your 30s you have friends that are in this like whole range of life stages right like some are single some are in serious relationships some are married without kids some are married like with one or two or like three kids so among the people you grew up with or your friends from college like you have this massive range of experiences And Chris and I are like kind of on like different ends of that spectrum. So Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about where you are in your 30 something life? Okay. Yeah. I think I would describe where I am as sort of a weird in-between space, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to school longer than most. 
I think I've been in school 98% of my life, <laughs> which is a long time. And yeah. this last time I went, I went for four years to do my um, doctorate. Uh-huh. And it almost feels like I, I pushed a pause button on my life. Yeah. Because it's like, it, you know, those are, you know, it's like, like age 30 to 34. Typically speaking, people think of those as your prime earning years, you know, mm-hmm. where you're kind of setting yourself up. Um, and I was living in a, call, you know, like pretty much a dorm room. and then and then your you know your mentality you're just a student again um yeah and so you're not really thinking about taxes and you're not thinking about saving up for a home you know you're thinking Mm -hmm. about like a test and a paper so when I emerged from that so I find myself I'm like 34 now I'm 35 and I kind of feel like I've pushed pushed play again Mm -hmm. and I'm looking around and I kind of feel like I came out of a time capsule you know, yeah. like everybody's married with kids. I'm hanging out with mostly 20 something year olds being like, hey, kids, <laughs> fellow kids, fellow kids. <laughs> what's what's the news today? You know, that kind of awkward thing, which is it's great. Yeah. Like I, I kind of feel like I belong. Um, mm-hmm. And then other times I'm just like, oh, my gosh, you know, you know, that feeling of like falling behind or you're like, you know, you, you don't want it to seep too much into your brain. But basically, yeah. that's kind of where I am, where I'm not, I'm not of that, you know, hardcore millennial crowd. And I'm mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. I've not been initiated to the, uh, the mortgage crowd. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best yeah. way I could describe it. What about you? Okay. How would you describe your life stage? Um, I would describe it like kind of bifurcated. So I feel like in my personal life, I very much followed like the traditional trajectory that you were talking about. So I met my spouse when I was 25. We got married when I was 27. Um, had our first kid when I was 32. Had our second kid when I was 35. I'm 36 now. So uh, we also bought our first house last year. So like, yeah, I have a mortgage and two children. Um, and I think yeah, I feel like in my personal life, I am what people expect when they see somebody who's 36, right? But then my professional life is like kind of all over the place because I also spent way too much of my life in school. Like I spent my entire 20s also getting a doctorate. So um, got out of school at 28 and my spouse was still finishing school. So I was like doing things that I found interesting, like knowing that we were probably going to be moving in a few years. Then we did move and I did that a little bit longer. And then I was like, oh, I should also say that I realized at the during my graduate program that I didn't like what I was studying and I didn't want to pursue that as a career. So um, by the time I kind of figured out what I wanted to do, I was like in my early 30s already. Um, and so I was like, how do I enter this field as a 30 something when like I have a PhD but I'm also entry level. Like, I don't really know what that looks like. Oh, and I'm also in my early thirties. So if I want to have children, I need to do that pretty soon. So like, while that was all kind of like fizzling around, I was like, I have to, I have to start having kids. So I'm in this like very interesting stage where I feel like in some ways I'm on my like fourth or fifth career Mm. and I'm just starting, but I'm also 36. And so that my, 
I feel like my pervert, my professional, my personal trajectory looks very traditional, but my professional trajectory looks like a hot mess, mm. basically. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so you and I are like such good friends and we see, like we're interested in so many of the same things. Like we see things in very similar ways, but our day-to-day lives are so different. Yes. And so we wanted to ask each other some questions about what the other's life is like. Okay, Three from questions. like the perspective of like our two different life stages, right? Yes. Because there, exactly. there has to be people listening to this where they probably fit more in your life stage and then there are people who fit more in my life stage, right? Correct, correct. These are just curious, curiosity questions. All right, all right, cool. So, um, do you want to start or should I start? Uh, I can start. Okay. Well, let's, start, let's start easy, let's start easy. Okay, okay. I'm curious um, what meal planning looks like in your house. Oh, God. That's an excellent question. What it looks like is Saturday morning, we're like, all right, we got to plan meals for the week. So we have to like be like, what do we want to make? Because we need to go grocery shopping after my younger kids, after my younger kid wakes up from his nap. So we're like, oh, God, what are we going to make? What are we going to make? We like grab, like pick two things and then we shop for it. And then we make them all over the weekend because during the week, there's no hope of getting anything on the table with like two children and jobs and all of that. So we do all of our cooking and all of our shopping on the weekends, which means that a lot of our weekend honestly is dedicated to meal prep and that kind of sucks, but eating out is expensive. Right. So, but is it, is it like, do you have a um, certain go-to meals that you kind of like recycle again and again and again? Oh yeah, totally, totally. And they're like, we're all sick of them. <laughs> and so, but then whenever we try new stuff, it's like always very hit or miss, you know? So yeah, um, yeah. so we have like our go-tos and then we just, and like basically like there are go-tos that are like not spicy because our kids can't handle spicy food. And like, you know, like it's like a, a subset of the things that and they can't be too complicated because like we used to cook like very elaborate meals, but we can't do that anymore because who has the time? So yeah. Like it's a very small subset of what we used to make right. before we had kids. Gotcha. So, gotcha. yeah. Cause it's just like a low key anxiety for me because I, like I, I just cycle through stuff that works for me. And then yeah. it's like, if you all of a sudden have this family and it's like, what if they're not into the stuff that you eat? And then, oh yeah. And then no. How does that work? Uh, I have no idea. Totally. And like, what happens if you try something new and then your four-year-old tastes it and it's like, I don't like this. You're like, shit, you're supposed to eat that for like three days. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do now. Has that happened? Oh, yeah. It's happening this week. Oh, no. So, yeah. Wah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then people have different philosophies. Like, do you be like, well, it's this or the highway or like, let me get something else for you. You know what I mean? Gotcha. So, okay. okay. Um, so for my first question, I need to get some timeline for you because I feel like that will help set the context for what I asked you okay. next. So you graduated from college in 06, right? Yeah. Okay. And then you worked in SoCal for a while. When did you move to New York? I moved in 2009. 2009. Okay. And then you finished your master's in? 2010. 2010. Mm-hmm. And then you worked, which involved a lot of travel. And then you moved to London when? 2013. 2013. Okay. And then you moved to South Africa when? Uh, 2016. Okay. And then you moved back to London when? 2017. 
Okay. And then back to SoCal also in 2017? Um, for like a couple months. Okay. And then you moved to DC? 2018. 2018. Mm-hmm. Okay. First of all, that is bananas. Like, you're not just moving. You're moving, like, countries and continents. Correct. Bonkers. Okay. Um, so, going back, you moved to London when you were 29, which, as you said in your intro, like, is, like, right when I imagine a lot of your friends were, like, getting married, getting promoted, maybe starting to have kids. Um, what was it like for you to veer away from this and leave the country and start this entirely new chapter of your life while your friends here were like doing the exact opposite and settling down. It was, um, that was the, the worst year of my life. Mm. Um, because I think when people come to New York, it's like they want to prove something. Mm-hmm. And so when you leave New York, you, you craft the story about yourself that you've mm. conquered, you, you've yes. done the thing that you came to do. Yeah. So I, I really thought that that's the way New York was going to end for me. Mm-hmm. But like within the last few months uh, the the last few months in in new york strangely everything started coming together Hmm. started like like um i was working at the un Mm -hmm. and i was made some kind of like a hey like if you stick around for like another year you know well you know there's a staff position waiting for you there's a career thing uh there was a relationship um there was all these things that just kind of in the last six months it all came together And when I left, you know, I remember standing in front of the dorm room Mm -hmm. being like, oh, my God, what have I done? (laughs) I had an apartment apartment in New York. I Uh fought and clawed to have that apartment. Yeah. You know, I had a career going. I had like possibly, you know, a long term relationship. I don't know. Uh And it was it was like I just for what? What did I give that up for? You know, to go back and study. Oh, my gosh. It was a process of unraveling. That's what it felt like. Uh-huh. Like, and then how did that like resolve? It was, yeah, I think the best way to explain it was I, I kind of fell apart and then I had to build the pieces back up upon a brand new ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the version of me that I am today is that reconstructed version. I sure. Think. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to say like, I'm not going to go back and say, that was the best decision of my life. You know, it's mm-hmm. just a different version of myself that wouldn't have, wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that decision to just for whatever reason, throw everything away and start over. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. I am going to give you three extra hours a day. Everybody else lives on 24 hours and you are given 27 hours. Oh my God. You can allocate it any way you want. You can use it however you want. How do you Um, use those extra three hours? That is such a good question. If I'm honest, I'm probably spending at least two of those three hours sleeping. Yeah. (laughs) In the morning? In the morning or at night? Um, It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Anywhere. Because right now I'm kind of on this like 11 to 5.30 schedule and it's, it's not working. This, I, Yeah, I could take three hours a day easily and okay. spend it sleeping. Um, I would really love more time to work though, which is kind of my ongoing struggle as a parent. Like I love my kids and I love working so much 
And because my work is very like freelance, independent, like I don't have a traditional office or traditional hours, like having kids significantly impacts my ability to work. Um, and I felt like I was like at a pretty good balance after, you know, after my first kid was about two and like I, he was in daycare in the morning, I could work I, in the afternoon, I had him and we could hang out and that was great. But then, you know, I had the second kid and I was like flushing all that down the toilet. So, um, yeah, like I always, always, always desperately want more time to work. So, um, I think I would honestly spend that three hours doing some combination of the two. Okay. So two hours of sleep and then find one hour somewhere to work. Yeah. Yeah. I would tack the hour, the hour of work on to like my, one of my kids naps so I could have like a longer chunk of time to work. Cause like there is not a, it's very difficult to work just in like one hour increments. Yeah. Like you just get momentum and then you're like, ah, shit, the kid's awake. I got to stop. Right. So it's very hard to get anything done. Um, so yeah. Okay. Um, you come back to the States at 34. You are this reconstructed person, right? But you're re-entering an American life where the same peers you had before are now having kids, buying houses, they're VPs of things. What is it like for you to re-enter that as this like completely different person? It's really hard. I mean, I, you get all this, uh, you know, social media advice about, you know, you know, you're on your own timeline and yeah, all yeah. The, <laughs> the self-motivation memes and everything. I mean, all of that, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I remind myself, I look at my 20s and I'm proud of the way I spent it. And then my early 30s as well, like, you know, rich of experience and everything. Mm -hmm. So I, I try to frame it around. What did I? What did I pay for? I, I got these experiences, and that's what I paid for, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's the trade off. All of these things have trade offs, right? Right. I have friends that got married right out of college, and you know the trade off is that you know they didn't get to have this sort of freewheeling life that I've had, right? Yeah. That I just kind of move somewhere. Even now, if I wanted to move to Thailand, I have nothing holding me back from going. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that, there's that that freedom, but you know, the trade off, of course, is that they have like equity, <laughs> 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 and and you know they're gonna be they're they're gonna be young parents, you know, yeah. like when young when retirees, yeah, too. young retirees, and they're gonna enjoy all that on the back end. So there, mm -hmm. there's always the trade off, and I have to remind myself of that. Is that I, if I'm just looking at what I don't have and, yeah. and like, you know, the feeling of feeling behind, which is definitely there, then you're missing out on, then I'm missing out on what, what it is I, I did that for. Mm -hmm. what, what did I gain from, from that? And yeah. I think to have a fair assessment and a balanced kind of view of it, you have to, ha you have to hold, hold both. I think. I appreciate your candor in that. Cause I think it would be really easy just to be like, yeah, I appreciate your candor in that answer as well. Okay, I have, let's see, which one should I go for? Okay, so I imagine that um, where you are in your life, there's a lot of demands on your time and attention, right? Mm -hmm. Kids, mm -hmm. marriage, in-laws, parents, uh, your work, uh, household, um, all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. What is, 
an area that you allow yourself to be completely selfish? Um, how do I phrase this? On a small scale, like on a, like a micro week to week scale, like every weekend I get to leave the house, no matter what state it's in for like three or four hours to do what I want to do every week, every week, usually Sunday mornings in lieu of church, which I feel this is a better use of my time at this point in my life than going to church. Um, so usually that means like going to my favorite coffee shop and like journaling, processing my feelings, <laughs> um, being without my children, which is like a vacation. And it always, almost always involves working uninterrupted because that's something I've wanted to do like all week and not been able to do. So it probably says something about me that like, when I'm given my own time, what I end up doing is working. But like that, honestly, like uninterrupted time to work is like such a luxury. And I love working that like it, it feels like a treat to be able to do that, which I think some people will think that that's weird, but it makes sense to me. So no, I don't think that's um, weird at all. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that there are some um, like I'm thinking, of, I feel like some Instagram moms would be like, that's not actually time for yourself. But I'm like, no, this is time for myself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, on a larger scale, like if I, I spend so much time with my kids, there is ever an opportunity to travel for work or anything like reunion with my grad school friends. Like I, I do it. I don't ask permission. I just do it. And I expect that my spouse will take care of the children and that yeah I I feel very okay about I mean that being said I don't travel willy-nilly and like ditch the kids um but yeah I don't I don't feel any compunction about doing that because I feel like I have sacrificed so much of my own career and like put that on hold for my kids that like when I need when I get opportunities to travel for work I don't think twice about it and my spouse is like fully thankfully fully supportive of that even if he weren't, I'd probably still do it. And that would be an issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it is, I mean, I appreciate that question a lot because like, it is like when you are a parent and like a, a mom in particular, like it is so freaking hard to like carve out anything for yourself. And I think some of that is just like the virtue of time being zero sum, but also like there are, I think so many pressures on women that like if you are not devoting every ounce of your energy and every one of your waking moments to your children that like you are somehow like a bad mom or like a selfish person right, right. And selfish in a bad way person right. and so um yeah like i just i think that that's like a like i i appreciate the question because i think parents and moms in particular should give themselves permission to be like completely selfish in the way that you describe on on the regular in some particular way you know right just to balance um, it out that, right yeah, yeah no but i think it's real it's really hard to do that when like a time is so limited and like you know your kids needs never stop but also when like there is so much pressure to like yeah again if you're not spending every ounce and every waking moment with them then like somehow like you're being a selfish bad person you know yeah. so anyway yeah cool yeah no thank you Um, so one of the things that I remember most about grad school is how temporary everything felt. And you alluded to this before, but like, 
I'm thinking about when I was in grad school, like I knew that I wasn't going to live in that place forever. I knew I wasn't going to do, you know, be working on this research project forever. I knew I wasn't going to be doing research forever, period, and on and on and on. Um, so what is it like for you now to know that like you're in DC indefinitely and you'll have this job indefinitely, like that your surroundings are like relatively permanent? Um, it feels really nice, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. It's like uh, every day I look at my little tiny retirement account and I'm like, <laughs> it's finally growing. Mm. It's like a little chia pet. I'm, I'm finally putting some water on it. <laughs> it's sprouting. It's sprouting. It's like in its infancy. And I, I feel really like I've finally become an adult when I mm -hmm. see that. I think I'm, I met somebody recently that was on the other side of that where she felt like she needed to get out and mm -hmm. explore. Mm -hmm. And I remember what that felt like. Mm -hmm. It really made me realize that I got what I was going to get out of it. Mm. And now I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> and now I rest you know uh -huh. I want to yeah. I want to put some more things in the suitcase or you know yeah. I don't know honestly I want to throw out the suitcase yeah, yeah. oof up in the air you know, oof. I'm at the stage of my life where I'm like aspiring to an Ikea couch mm. and one day I'm thinking about mm. trading it in for that crate and barrel mm. yeah the upgrade yeah the upgrade yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if it's like, if I feel, if it's just more like burned out and I just need to recover mm -hmm. or if this is like for real, for real. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So that's an open question, I think, because sometimes when I do go on one of my trips, mm -hmm. um, I'm just like, wow, like, let's just lean back into this, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there are Friday nights where I'm just like, I'm going to sleep at nine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I feel like we could talk about all this for a long time and we definitely will I have so many more uh, questions I have so many more questions I know I have so many more questions um, I'm looking forward to picking this up again down the line um, okay but let's go into our top five shall we what's our top five today uh, we're gonna we're gonna go throwback. So these are the albums of the '90s. Our top five favorite albums of the '90s. Nice. Yeah, we're 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 both born in the '80s, but we're both like, let's be real, we're we're '90s kids, aren't we? Products of the '90s. Yes, definitely. Forged in the fire of the '90s. Yes. Um. So. I just want to see how you did this. Is this what you were actually listening to in the '90s, or albums from the '90s that you love now? Okay, so I, I started writing my list, uh -huh. and then I realized I was totally not being real with myself. Uh -huh. So like, I had, like, Illmatic, Nas, you know, uh -huh. like, I had oh, yeah, yeah. Dre, Chronic, and I'm like, I didn't listen to this in the 90s. Let's, let's, let's not try to be all cool. Uh -huh. So I'm, I'm keeping it real, and okay. I am, I'm giving you what I actually listened to in the 90s. Okay. How about you? What, how did you make this list? Um, I did mine a little differently. Mine is more 90 albums from the 90s that I love now. Not kidding myself. Like I didn't put like, okay, computer on here to make, to make <laughs> myself feel cool. 
It is stuff that I actively listened to either in the 90s or like shortly thereafter because some of the stuff I didn't find until like I was in college, which was in the like early 2000s. Gotcha. All right. So, yeah. Okay. How many of ours do you think are going to be the same? Two. Okay. I think it's a good number. I think it's going to be one or two. All right. My number five is Cooley High Harmony, all one word, Boys to Men. This was like their debut album. It had Motown Philly. It had um, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye and End of the Road on the like. Ex- like wow. That was their debut? That was their debut. Holy cow. Yeah. So basically like, okay, first of all, Motown Philly is like, that's like the song I'm always looking for even now. You know what I mean? Like whenever they're flipping the radio, like I, that's exactly the song I want. That's probably why I love horn so much. That's probably why we picked this intro music. <laughs> I love a horn section. Uh, it's all coming um, back now. It's all coming together. Totally. Totally. But like, really, like in terms of like what R&B sounded like in the 90s, I feel like everything is just trying to be end of the road and it's so hard to say goodbye. I mean, what other, Um, has there been another group like Boys to Men? I don't, I mean, I think there were some like All for One tried, Casey and Jojo tried, but like, I feel like Boys to Men are the like platonic form of 90s R&B. I totally forgot about All for One. That's hilarious. Um, uh, my number four is a lesser known album called When the Pawn. It's actually not called that. It's actually a 90 word title. It's Fiona Apple's sophomore album. Came out in 1999. Um, I was really into angsty white girls in high school when it came to music. And because I just like felt really misunderstood. I was this like asian girl and this like mostly white school that's not even true my school was pretty diverse but like there were no asian people in it. i just felt misunderstood all the time and i felt like these angsty white women like captured like some of the rage i was feeling um <laughs> and so i really gravitated towards like yeah fiona apple in particular because she was like angry but she played the piano and her music has like very clear jazz influences and like um she can do ballads she can do rage um and her first album is really good but her second album i think is like just like a lot more complex and like i think about when i think about what my senior year sounded like this is the album are you the type that listens to lyrics i do yeah okay okay are you no no okay (laughs) yeah it's so weird too because i'm such a like i love the written word Uh uh-huh but i yeah, and so all when all this like these angsty songwriters came out, and I have probably one on my list as well. To this day, I have no idea what they're singing about. Mm. Wow! Do you ever like sing like listen to something like now, and you're like, oh, that's what they were saying? Yeah, yeah, all the time. Because I'm never, I'm never, pay, I'm never paying attention to the lyrics. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I can imagine you back in the '90s, like in your room, uh-huh. listening to Fiona and being like, she's talking yeah. to me. Yep. Yep. That's exactly how it felt. Um, okay. My number three is what's the story morning glory by Oasis. Wow. Um, 
the 90s were like a really big time for angsty white men like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and like I was never really into them like there was nothing about like an unwashed flannel wearing white dude that like spoke to my experience but I really liked this album in particular it's like um Wonderwall Don't Look Back in Anger Champagne Supernova like it's like it's got some of like the whiny nasally singing, but it's also got these like really kind of like epic string arrangements. Yeah. Um, That's a really yeah. good one. Thanks, thanks. Don't look, I, don't look I, back. I, me, don't, don't look back in anger is my go-to karaoke song. Really? Mm-hmm. Actually, I think I knew this. I think I actually have heard you sing this in karaoke the one time we've done it. No, uh, the, the one time we went karaoke, someone sang it before I got there. Oh no. So okay, never mind. Never yeah, mind. I couldn't, pull out my, I couldn't pull out my party trick. <laughs> you haven't you haven't lived until you've heard a British pub sing Don't Look Back in Anger. Oh God, that would be epic. Um, there was a period of time when I didn't listen to Oasis after Noel Gallagher said that they were bigger than the Beatles. Yeah. I was like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Is it because, is it because you love the Beatles that much? No, I was a serious Beatles fan. Yeah. That's actually why I don't know a lot of music. I think before high school, because I mostly listened to the, like, I did too. Really? Yeah. I grew up on the oldies. Yeah. Yeah, Same. Same. Is that is this like an immigrant parent thing? It could be because like my dad listened to it like exclusively on the radio. Yeah, yeah, my so, mom too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's like all my references are like fifties through seventies. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, my number two is "Jagged Little Pill" Alanis Morissette. I when I think about what the nineties sounded like, yeah, this is what the nineties sounded. like. I feel like I, I saw a list somewhere that ranked this the greatest album of the nineties. I think it was. It was it Rolling Stone, maybe. It know. was not Rolling Stone because I did see their list just to make sure. Okay. Yeah, just to check myself. Um, but it's like I think it's like the defining album of the nineties. Like, it and it was it sold like thirty three million copies. Like it had like six singles off of it that like had serious radio airplay. Like she toured on it for like years and years. Like this is. There are like that album from like top to bottom. There's maybe like one or two missteps, but like every single one of those songs could have been like a radio single. Okay, so what like, what what was the song for you in that album? Um, the one that got me was ironic, but I think the one that kept me was probably "You Ought to Know." Um, and then the hidden track, because remember, what's more '90s than a hidden track? Right? Oh, I love those. It's like really like there was like a there was like a the last song was like a remix of you ought to know and then if you waited a minute you got this like hidden track it was kind of a creepy song where she's like in her like lover's apartment and like finding out that he's cheating on her or something like that but yeah doesn't get more angsty and intimate than that i know i know but again i was like this like like 
misunderstood rage-filled teenager right and I was like this white Canadian woman who's singing about going down on Dave Coulier in a movie theater is like totally like she gets me I don't know she does not know but there's something in the music that I resonated with wow okay yeah wow that's like three, um, three in a row that's very yeah it's like angsty 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 yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. it's just a window into my psyche all right, all right. um but my number one is the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Gosh. I can't say because too much because that's on my list. As is well. it a crossover? Oh, you win. You win, sir. Two crossovers. Well, yeah, I think, I think we both thought the, these are the two that I thought were going to crossover, too. Like this, this album is like such a masterpiece. And I think when we talked about this before, we were having like, like which album was stronger. I think I maybe, I think I probably said Jagged Little Pill was like, was a better album. But upon reflection, like the music that I want to hear now, like the music that I crave now is miseducation mm-hmm. and jagged little pill sounds like the nineties, but like miseducation sounds like it could have come out anytime. It can come like, out now and it would be the it best. Come album. Out now. Yeah, it would win. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why like Cardi B is still singing it on SNL and like people keep finding ways to like remake it and to bring it into the music. No one's really redoing jagged little pill. It's, it feels to me very like of its time. But like miseducation, always relevant, always sounds fresh, always has layers you can take apart. You know, you want to hear something that make will make you angry. I work mm-hmm. with I, at my job. I work with um, a few mid twenties people. Uh huh. They don't know who Lauren Hill is. Oh my god, it hurts! It hurts. So deprived. Um, and I was listening to the Fugees, the score. That's also to- a great album. Also a great album. And I was just like, I was tempted to put that on. That's like probably my number six. But I was just like, who is this person? Like, she's such an exceptional singer. She's such an exceptional rapper. An exceptional songwriter. I was like, this album is incredible. What's the song that jumped out to you on that one? Oh, God. Um, I think everything is everything is everything probably. And doo-wop were the ones that got me. Um X Factor is the one I go back to, the one that I sing to my kids. Mm. I don't know. If, um, but the one, if you, re- if I'm really pressed though, the one that I love the most is her rendition of "Can't Take My Eyes Off You." Yeah. Hidden track. Another hidden so track. Good. Oh, all those hidden tracks just got you, didn't they? Yeah, it felt like discovering a secret. <laughs> You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. You be like heaven to touch. I wanna hold you so much And long last love has arrived And I thank God I'm alive Cool. That is a, okay. that is a very, like, in-your-feels list. Ooh. Oh, yeah. That's, again, but, but I mean, like, I was in high school, right? 96 to 2000. Like, when are you ever more in your feels than in high school? I could just imagine your face just so full of, like, intent. And so, like, so much conviction. Oh. That is 100% what I was like in high school. <laughs> incredible yeah okay i want to hear your list okay 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 number five i have jagged little pill at number five okay yeah okay. Came out in 95. i agree with you it is quintessential 90s um uh-huh. it uh it messed me up in one way which is i had i i i totally had the wrong definition of irony for like almost all oh, my totally. life uh-huh. none of the stuff that she talks about is actually ironic Correct, correct. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have the same kind of like emotional connection with it 
I think, because again, I wasn't paying attention to the lyrics, but (laughs) (laughs) like, uh, you know, that one song, uh, Hand in My Pocket. Yeah. Like, you know how she always changes. So it's like, I've got, and and I think like, I love that song because I was always trying to guess (laughs) what she was saying. It's kind of like California Love where it's like the, in the city and you're like, you're always saying Compton, but it's always something. Right. <laughs> and for, <laughs> for that hand in my pocket, I got one hand in my pocket. And I'm always like waiting for her to flick the cigarette, but I'm always wrong. Right, right, right. So <laughs> it's, it's, always like, sign. it's always a peace sign. You're like, damn it. I'm never going to learn this song. <laughs> um so that was my experience with that but yeah it was just like every song was a hit um yeah. like i was really into singer songwriters and she's like the quintessential right yeah yeah so alanis morissette's my number five i love it my number four is mariah carey daydream oh strong choice yeah yeah such a good choice and it really i mean the music is is good but it wasn't the music it was the album cover I think I think it was my first human crush. Like I had <laughs> I had I had crushes. This is the weirdest sentence anyone has ever uttered. I had like I, I had crushes on like animated characters like as a oh, kid growing up. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. but this was like my first one where I was like, wow, she's a real human being and I think I have a crush on her because yeah. that and I think you can talk to a lot of guys growing up at my age, that album cover, I mean, oh my gosh, it's the black. She's so stunning. Oh my gosh. She's like in black and white. And then you open the uh-huh. album and it's just, it's the same picture, but like, it's like the, the body length one and it's like black and white. And it's like, mm-hmm. who is this? And this, yeah. this angelic voice as well. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, if I'm keeping it real, it's, it was really the album cover more than anything, but that one also had hits. Yeah. It had yes. One Sweet Day, which was the collaboration mm-hmm. with Boys to Men. Mm-hmm. Always be my mate. Always be my maybe. Always be my baby. <laughs> um, fantasy. Uh huh. All the all the all the. It was stacked. Right? It's a stacked album. Yeah, and that's like I think that's when Mariah went to like diva status with this album. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My number three, which is honestly probably too low on my list, is mm-hmm. um, the album is called Another Level by Blackstreet. I was weirdly obsessed with Blackstreet. This came out in 96, so I was 12. Uh (laughs) And I just couldn't stop talking about Blackstreet. And so this is like around junior high for me. Mm -hmm. And junior high is like when you start going to these like school dances, right? Yes. And, Uh you know, like you're the seventh graders. So the eighth graders. They all, you know, they've been around the block. So they, they have no problem dancing with girls or girls dancing with guys. They don't, right? But uh-huh. seventh grade, you, you have no idea what you're doing. And uh-huh. I had no idea. So what I was doing was I was always hanging next to the DJ <laughs> requesting Blackstreet songs. I, <laughs> I requested everything. I requested Amazing. no diggity. Uh-huh. I want to be your man. And I did that thing where, you know, you, you tell the DJ, hey, can you dedicate this song to that one girl? From, Shut up. No, but not from me. Like, you're always playing pranks. And so it's like, oh. you're like, can you, dedicate, <laughs> can you dedicate it to Patty from Jason? And everyone's like, ah! Yeah. 
And then it's like this. Comp- again, I'm not listening to the lyrics. So if you look at the lyrics now, these are very inappropriate songs for seventh grade. <laughs> yeah. Um, good loving. Oh my god. Amazing, amazing. Blackstreet, out of all the R and B groups, yeah. No diggity is iconic though. Yeah, I mean that that song is still fresh now. You play that, it totally. still gets people going. Totally. Okay, number two is okay. So I have to be real for real here. Like, miseducation is should be number one because uh-huh. it is. I mean, I agree with every single word you said. It is the most masterful album I've ever heard in my life, even to this day. Uh-huh. Um, I praise. Yeah. And uh, for me, the song is To Zion. Um, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I just can't get, mm-hmm. I, I think it's so deep. And also Lost Ones. I really like Lost Ones. Um, oh, that's a really good one too. Um, so that should be my number one. Uh-huh. I'm like, I'm bated breath. If Miss Education's two, what is number, what could possibly be number one? <laughs> my number one is me totally keeping it real. And it's uh-huh. the Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> The album is crashed. It's 1996. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! That's so amazing. And it's it's so embarrassing because I I don't know how I got into Dave Matthews Band, but I was obsessed from like uh-huh. from like early high school all through high school. If you dig up anybody from high school, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's the Dave Matthews guy," because that's all I'm talking <laughs> about. And I think it's because. Um, I have co- cousins that are a little bit older than I am and they're from New uh-huh. York uh-huh. and they were into the Dave Matthews band. And I was like, uh-huh. oh, sure. I thought they were so cool. I thought my cousins were so cool. So mm-hmm. I got into the Dave Matthews band. That's how it always goes. Yeah. And I, I just today, I looked up the lyrics to some of these songs like Crash uh-huh. and oh, yeah. Tripping Billies and number 41. And these lyrics make no sense at all. <laughs> I, I really, I, I wish I could read you some of these lyrics. They make no sense. He's like dancing with ghosts. He's clearly high when he's writing all this. Totally, like, 100%. Yeah, and it's, it's actually very uh, pretentious writing, actually. Um, uh-huh. He thinks he's like being poetic, but these are, these are awful lyrics. <laughs> but I was obsessed. Um, I know it's so embarrassing, but if I'm being real, Dave Matthews is number one, Miss Education's number two. I mean, I can't. I love it. I love it. I love the honesty. That's like so beautifully high school that you're like, miseducation is good, but you know what's better? Crash into me. It's so real. Amazing. <laughs> I don't know what he's saying, but he's singing to me. Yeah. Um, we definitely need to do this again. We need to do albums of the 2000s. Okay. And in a few months, We'll be able to do albums of the twenty teens. Wow, which is bananas. That's crazy. But what are we? What should we do before then? What should we do next week? Um, let's do top five things or people that 
are universally loved, but that you and I actually despise? <laughs> this is either going to be a really easy list to put together or a really hard one. I think it's going to be awesome, though. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is like a controversial, like these, this is an inherently controversial list, right? So, but I like it. <laughs> Dude, this was fun. This was fun. Albums of the 90s, so fun. So fun. Let's do it again. Let's do it again in two weeks. Sounds good. Boys, the men, ABC, BBD. Mm-hmm.